I'd like for you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10 once again. And we'll continue on our topic of last week, which I didn't get finished. Now, the title of the message is Why? A question. Why? Christians are forever asking that question in times of stress and difficulty. Why? How come? I'm asking it today in a message, continuing it. Why? In John 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, The thief cometh but for to kill and to steal and destroy. Jesus said, On the other hand, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And while a lot of people have read that and can read that as Christian, I'm talking about church folks, a lot of people read about the abundant life, but they cannot testify to it in light of the way he meant it to be understood. They're glad they're alive. They're glad they're breathed. Yes, 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 yes. But there's more to life than just making it. Jesus has promised an abundant life, a life that's rich and full. And not to be compared with what happened to them or that or that. He's reading to you, and the promise is to you. If there's any exceptions to that, God will speak personally to the people it's for, and they'll understand and so forth. But to us, he says, I am come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I could ask the question, this is not the message, but I could ask the question, why then don't Christians have the abundant life? Why don't we see more of it? We see a lot of members in churches, churches are growing and increasing in sizes, and a lot of activity and busyness, but that doesn't mean their quality of their spiritual life is abundant. We still fuss and fight and fume and have throwdowns and splits and testimonies in town won't pay her bills, don't treat her children right. We still have all of that, so something's lacking in this abundance. And I ask the question, why? I mean, we got a promise here. Why isn't it working? The first part of the verse was that the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. Well, that's what's happening. The devil, though the Bible is full of scriptures explaining how to overcome the devil, how to defeat the devil, who the devil is and what he does. Clear, multiple verses about how the enemy works. Or as Peter said, he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And he's finding people. And I think, why? We've got a book full of promises of how we can overcome him, that God will bless us. He backs his word. He watches over to perform it. And yet... The very people to whom the word is spoken are the people the devil is killing and stealing and destroying, spoiling, taking away from us the abundance that we should have, making us miserable and many times wretched and downtrodden and depressed and so negative. Why? It shouldn't be like that. We have all of this message of redemption. We have been redeemed from the enemy. The power of Satan has been broken, the Bible says. And yet, he still has his way amongst church members. Why? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we are not ignorant of his devices. The Bible does tell us what he does and how he does it. It's not like we don't know anything. We're not ignorant of his devices. And yet we're told in Ephesians 4.27 that we're not to give place to the devil which warns us as Christians that though you're a member of a church, you've been born again. That doesn't mean the devil cannot get to you anymore. 
doesn't mean he cannot invade your life and in spite of what the Bible says, make your life miserable because he can. I asked the question, we should ask the question, why is that? Why is it that we're so defeated? Why is it that we're always murmuring, all of us, I'm not saying you and anybody in particular, but as general, the Christians are noted for their complaining. Ask any pastor in the world at any time of the day, any month of the year, and he'll be able to point out to you that people just complain. Something's really, really lacking, and we ask, why are people like that? And my answer was, is because we don't fight. We're supposed to fight the good fight of faith, but something has happened to what God calls faith in our lives so that it's no longer what it's supposed to be. And we don't use it, and therefore we don't fight. Remember I talked about the dynamic duo last week. The two things that we fight with is spoken of in Ephesians 6. The Bible talks about the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty. Those two weapons in particular are the Word of God and faith. Ephesians 6, we talk about the shield of faith, which the Bible says quenches all the fiery darts of Satan. I don't care what the devil does, what he tries to do, or how he comes, God has issued to you as a soldier in his army a weapon that God says will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and yet we're always praying about dart situations. People are always down and defeated, not always, but too often are down and defeated because the devil's darts are burning. I think it shouldn't be like that. Now, we're going to be under attack, of course. The thief does come, but he's not supposed to win. We're supposed to resist him in the faith, are we not? Didn't Jesus tell Peter, the devil has desired you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not? Well, wouldn't it make sense to you then that the devil would center his whole attack on the word because that's the source from which faith comes? Faith comes by hearing. So if the devil can somehow attack the meaning of the Bible or what it says, then no faith can come from that because faith comes from what God said, not what man said. So why then wouldn't the devil, the enemy, the enemy of our souls. Why wouldn't he then come at us with misinformation or set in a pulpit in any church, in many churches, some educated, refined, maybe gifted speaker of some sort or some accomplished book writing personality that everybody just seems to gravitate towards, but somebody who misleads people? You hear it all the time. When you read certain parts of the Bible, well, about tongues, or about healing, or about trusting God with all of your heart, or killing, Sermon on the Mount. And when you're sitting there hearing that, somebody reads the Bible, reads that part, and you're thinking, hmm. See, we're all right until you begin to explain it. We don't mind you reading the Bible or even quoting the Bible. Just don't explain what it means because that's when people get uncomfortable and they begin to back off, say, I don't know about that. That makes me, I don't like that kind of preaching. And, and you know, I, I, that is, yeah. 
And those people are vulnerable because if you don't hold to the truth, if you don't desire the word like the psalmist said, thy word is very pure. If you don't hold to a pure word, what do you get? You get a tainted word. You get a mixture word. The Bible said desire the sincere milk of the word. Remember that? That you may grow. Desire the sincere milk. The word sincere is unadulterated. Nothing added to it. I don't need man to explain away what God clearly says. My flesh wants to have it explained away. I don't want to have to have my conscience guilty going through the day knowing that I'm wrong and God is right and I don't want to change. So I keep running to churches until I find one where the preacher doesn't explain what the Bible means and gives me the option of explaining it for myself. Saying things like, well, who's to tell anybody what they're supposed to? I mean, the Bible was written so many years ago, and it's, you know, some of this has been recopied and copied so much that probably some things have been lost in the copies. We just do the best we can with what it says because nobody really knows exactly what it means. So, you know, God just wants you to do your best. Now, that kind of misinformation disarms you. Faith doesn't come from that kind of stuff, except faith in yourself. That becomes, what I just said, becomes deceit. It becomes guile. It is misleading error. It's what causes people to lose interest in truth because there is no such thing as definite truth. Everything has an explanation. You talk about things that were in the Bible, head covering or washing of feet or things that, that they did in the Bible. And today that's such a non-dignifying thing to do that I don't want to do that. So preacher, you got some education. Tell us why that isn't what the Bible meant. And so catering to people to make them comfortable and happy, he tells them that it doesn't mean it. Said, well, now we know the Bible says that, but you must understand that in those days, in that culture, they did that because. But today, this doesn't apply. And therefore, we can hear that again. It doesn't mean a thing to us. Because somebody's talked us out of it, telling us that it doesn't apply for today. It might as well not have been in there. And consequently, church folks have reduced what we're doing today as nothing more than a socially proper thing that decent people do. You should go to church. You should have some kind of a moral gear in your life, and you should do your best. But as far as the time of being convicted of your sins or convicted of your life, or a time of learning and a time of giving the Holy Spirit a chance to really bear down on you to get some dirt out of your life so you can be raised up into a more pure level with the Lord. That takes work and people don't like it. That's why people don't like to be taught. They're like a preacher. They don't want a teacher because teaching is explaining what the Bible says. That's where guilt and conviction comes from and people don't like to be convicted. But how would we ever grow how would we ever become like God wants us to become if we don't grow? And how can we grow if the word is so distorted that no true faith can come from it? Just opinions. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11. I mentioned this last week. Let me say it again. Paul writes, but I fear lest by any means, those would be maybe methods attacks, attempts, ways that he comes, 
He comes at some people this way and some people that way. He knows who you are and what you do. He knows where your weaknesses are. He goes about like a roaring lion. He says, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety that your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. The area of attack is the mind. As a man thinketh, so is he. If you distort the Word of God, if you add the flavor of man's interpretations to it and it's no longer what God says, it is no longer a cleansing word. It doesn't make you whole. It maybe becomes a word of entertainment in which we applaud the skill of the words a preacher used to make his point this morning about some social event. We get all excited and up and about social matters. We leave this behind. And the devil knows that if he can get you to think backwards or wrong or upside down or worldly, he knows that he can disarm you from ever attacking him because really the only thing God watches over to perform is his word. You take away from his word, you take away from what assistance and help you're going to have from God because you don't have any faith. You may say, well, this is how I see it. That's not faith. That's your opinion. Faith is what God says and God says alone if you believe it. You hold to it and you trust in it. But he said the devil deceived Eve by his subtlety, his craft, his shrewdness, his corrupt and clever ways. Of the various definitions of the Greek word corrupted, one stood out to me and it said, bring to a worse state. Your mind, instead of being eager and sensitive and hungry and searching and would like to know what that means, you come to the place where your mind is so distracted by everything else and the word is not interesting anymore, has no meaning. That you lose interest in it and you can sit there and fold your arms and halfway through the church service, check your watch out and when's he going to quit? You're here, but you're not here. You're there, but you're not there. The hunger's gone. The thirst is gone. No faith comes from that, and this person becomes meat for the devil. And when the devil does come in like a flood in somebody's life like this, they run to the preacher and say, why? So before that happens, the preacher says to you, why? Why are you letting this happen in your life? Why are you seeking some easy way out of life? Why are you looking for something that takes away the, the meaning, the sword of this book? Why are you taking all of this away to have it your way? Your way doesn't work. When he said trust in God with all of your heart, he didn't mean trust in what you think about God. It's trust in what God said. What does he say? Teach me thy way, O Lord, that I may walk in thy truth, the psalmist said. I want to know what it says. Because I want to have the simplicity that goes with knowing Christ. Simplicity means single-hearted devotion, an unmarred-by-man relationship with God. Like Paul said, I know in whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able. And re remember this. When you have faith in God, when you surrender your will to his will, and what he says is what you take to be your word. 
Faith is accepting as true what God says in his word. And you live like it's true. And you act like it's true. And you walk like it's true because you have surrendered all the results and all the fulfillment that God has promised. You're just counting on him to do it. Because if faith is anything, it's counting on God to do what he said. And you're willing to do that. Now, where then in this person's life is there room for complaining and murmuring? If you cast all your care over on the Lord, what do you worry about? What are you whining about? What do we cry about? What do we stomp on our feet and spit in the floor? And How would we act like that if we're trusting God for results? It's where there is no faith that you get all this other stuff. It's where people are not relying on God, are not counting on God, that you get the other stuff. Turn to James 1. Remember Paul said, he said, be careful for nothing, didn't he? But in all things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and what will happen? The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Well, how could you have your mind guarded by peace and joy and be agitated and tore up and fearful and afraid all the time? Let me tell you something. Listen to this. Take any area of your life that gives you trouble, and in that area you are not trusting God. Any area in your life you're struggling with, Whatever it is, that's an area you're not trusting in God because when you cast your care over on the Lord, it is implied that you leave it there. And if you really believe he's going to take care of you as he said he would, what then do you have to do but to say thanks? Philippians 4. It's when people aren't really sure that God will do things that they complain and murmur that they get in a frenzy. The least bad news throws them off. You know, James 1 said, count it all joy. Didn't he? With verse 2. Count it all joy when you encounter different kinds of trials. Knowing this, if you know this, if you haven't been talked out of this, if you know it, that the testing of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have the work it's designed to have. Because that work results in you being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A patient man is an enduring man, a steadfast person. You're steadfast because you're sure of something. You cast your care over on the Lord. I'm going to take God at his word. How many of you believe you're saved? You ever seen the Lamb's Book of Life? You ever been up there to check it out, see who else is in the book? How do you know there even is a book? You don't know if there's even a Lamb's Book of Life. You heard there's a Lamb's Book of Life. You read there's a Lamb's Book of Life in the Bible. You haven't seen it. How do you even know it exists? What if some clever preacher said, well, that's just a term that God used to tell us that, you know, you should do your best so you could gain points. Therefore, it wouldn't mean anything anymore. You wouldn't rejoice anymore, as Jesus said, rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. How do you know there even is a book? How can you rejoice over a myth? 
I don't know that there's a Lamb's book of life by my eyes ever seeing or my hand ever touching it, but I believe it. I'm counting on that to be true. I'm going to act like my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That means I'm going to act like that God who saved me watches over me for my good, that I am graven on the palms of his hands, that he is not against me, he is for me, that whatever I ask he will do. He said he would. You ask and I'll do it, that your joy may be full. I'm going to live like that's true. Now, if I am, what do I complain about? Listen to me. What do I murmur about? What's my problem? You take doubt. Doubt, as he goes on to say in James 1, a man who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. He never knows what's right or wrong. Doubt is a cruel taskmaster because doubt means you're not sure. It's a mental word. Doubt is a word which means to divide or distract the mind, diacrino. You're this way and you're that way, and it's when you're that way that you talk too much. Oh, man, I don't know. I, I just, I, I, boy, I don't know. There, there's no peace of God keeping you here. The peace that passes understanding is not evident here. There's no testimony in this light of the peace of God keeping you because you're all tore up. You're not kept by anything. You're uncertain about everything. And this is the devil's ploy. These are his devices or his methods. This is the way he works. He doesn't care how old you are, how young you are, doesn't care about any of that, just as long as you are vulnerable to what he's doing and what he's saying. That's what he does. Remember Isaiah said, thou shalt keep him in perfect peace. Perfect peace. Have you ever seen a peaceful person complain? You ever seen somebody with just a serene, peaceful countenance, just complaining and belligerent? I just don't know what they're going to do up in there. You know, I tell you what, that preacher and this, these people in the church, oh, they're so unhappy. Oh, yeah, they're just so mean. They don't. They, they, little, 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 little. Peaceful people are peaceful. They have a source in their life. They have an outlet for their problems. How do you know they have a problem? Because God said he would cast all my cares upon him. I lay all of my burdens down at his feet, and any time I don't know what to do, I just cast my cares over on him. He gives you that. He knows you're going to be troubled in this life by threats of anxiety, things that are what care means, worry. He knows that. But before it ever happens, he gives you him, himself, as an outlet, as a rock, a solid rock that won't be moved, that you can count on him. If you will take him at his word, you bring him into your life to deliver you. No wonder you have peace, because you believe that's going to happen. It may not look like it's happened yet, but you believe it's going to happen. And you're at peace. How, why do you believe it? Because he said it. He said he would. Doubt is what brings debate and criticism and fussing and fighting and clamor and confusion. It's all because people do not believe what they have been taught. Take it any way you want to. But that's the truth. It's the unstable and the unsure that the devil is most able to distort the words of them. In all the years I've stood in pulpits, 
It hadn't been peaceful people I've ever had problems with. And the people I've had a problem with so often, the word's already given the answer, but they've ignored it. That means doubt. You considered it, obviously it's been considered, hadn't been heeded. And you turn away from the plain things that God said as a way you're going to live and act and talk. You turn away from that to something else. You're in turmoil. You ever seen those little, in pet shops, see that little whatever kind of animal it is that runs on a little wheel? He's busy. He doesn't go anywhere. He's busy, busy, busy. Muscular, good shape, to no avail. This is the result this morning, the results of being unsettled, being robbed and cheated by the devil. Here's some of the ways it manifests. Number one, you become unsettled and uncertain about God's promises. You become unsettled and uncertain about God's promises. The biblical faith that God gives means that you are confident and certain that what God has said, he will do. Anybody can say, well, we know that he could. Or we know by reading the Bible that he has. Oh, yes, God is able to do all of these things, yes. Somebody taught somebody in my family tree, somebody taught this to my family. While he is able to do all of this, you can't always know that he will. He might not want to. He might change his mind. And therefore, you're left with nothing to base your faith on. What do you base your faith on there? If somebody says God can, but he might not, then what do you believe? You step out and say, I'm going to trust the Lord. Somebody told you he might not do it. Your trusting is in vain. There's this resignation in religion. There's this resignation to fall back and hope for the best. Because somebody has taught us that you can't be sure. And it's presumption on your behalf to say that God will because he said he will. I mean, he might, and here comes the preacher. Well, now, we know he said that, but now you got to understand. And they begin explaining it away and leave you helpless. And the devil is licking his chops because you're the next victim. He's going to come into your life with all of his kind of stuff and then whisper in your ear, remember what the preacher said, it doesn't always work. And what do you do? You cry. You're fearful. You ask 10,000 people to pray for you if you could. You're in a frenzy. There's no peace. There's no joy in your life because you've got nothing to count on except the certainty of dying and being sick and wounded and not recovering. Because somebody said God could, but he might not. And if he might not, maybe you're one of those might nots. Then you believe in you're a might notist. You're in the might notism. Because he might not. What do you do? What kind of an aimless life is that? I have nothing from God for sure that I can count on except one promise. God will save you. Raise up your hand, he'll save you. How do you know he saved you? Because I raised my hand. Well, what about the life? I, I look, I raised my hand. That's all the preacher said I need to do. Nothing else works. Nothing else counts. I can't do anything else. To not have my hand raised, so I'm, I'm going to heaven, period. A lot of people believe that. 
They believe it because somebody told them. They don't believe it because the Bible told them that. They believe because somebody told them that. Misinformation is leading to the ruin and the spoil of most Christians because they are destroyed by a lack of knowledge. Or as Isaiah 5.13 says, he says, my people have gone into captivity. They're bound. They're held in captivity because of a lack of knowledge. And no matter how hard sometimes, sometimes, no matter how hard you try to teach and you try to explain so we can break this thing down and get this out of people's lives so that there can be hope in your life. Yes, there's difficulty and conviction and struggle. Yes, 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 yes. But there's victory also. And yet people are almost resigned. I'm not saying you are, but I'm saying in Christendom, because I remember how it was growing up. In Christendom, there's this resignation to whatever happens. Nobody fights. Nobody draws their sword and begins to confess the word of God and raises their shield because they don't even have one. They've been talked out of it. They're just good church members. People get sick and people die and things happen and people say, well, you know, that's just life. Sometimes it happens that way and there's nothing you can do about it. There is something you can do about it. The 91st Psalm you can do about it. No evil shall befall you. No plague come nigh your dwelling. He will give his angels charge concerning thee, and they shall keep you in all your ways, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And with long life, he said, he will satisfy you. And hardly anybody believes that. And if you preach that as though you believe that, people think you're in some kind of cult because you believe. This is what the Bible is for. This is information. It comes by revelation. It is God speaking to you. This is what you can count on. And if anybody doesn't speak according to this word, they have no light. And a man with no light is in darkness. And if you follow him, you're in darkness. And the blind who lead the blind, they will both fall into a ditch. And the ruin is great. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Shysters and crooks and dedicated misleaders are out there. They're going to run into you and you're going to run into them. And the only hope you have of escaping that snare is to stay with this book. That's why I've said a thousand times, don't believe a thing I tell you. You search the scriptures and see if that's true. If it's true, believe it because the Bible says it, not because a preacher said it. And hold to that. Because the faith that you have that God expects from you can only come from a pure word. Without that word, you have no faith. Remember Jesus again, he told Peter, he said, I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith fail not. Because the one thing the devil fears is that. Now, when you're unsettled in your mind, it means you're not sure. I would like to know that God will deliver me out of this situation, that God will fix this problem, or that God will find me a job, or that God will open a door for me, whatever. I want to believe that, but how do I know I can? So when this person prays, and they pray in earnest, you go to God and you say, oh God, you know how badly I want this? God knows all the things. You don't have to give him any information. He knows what you're talking about. But we try to convince him. 
Oh, God, you know, Lord, look, you know, I'm trying. And, and Lord, you know, down here and, 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 and we're trying to say, God, look how hard I'm trying. You ought to at least do it because of that. I mean, at least you ought to do something for me because I'm cut better than most people are. And I am trying. They don't know how to believe. They don't know how to say, Lord, you said, I take you at you where I'm counting on you. to." They don't know how to do that because that doesn't sound right. Faith comes how? By hearing. Remember the pop machines. You read the information. Number one, put money in the slot. The arrow points to slot. Number two, make selection. Number three, enjoy. How do you know how to get that pop out of there? Don't you have to read it? Or you just walk up the machine and say, you know how bad I want a drink, and you, I know you're in there. You don't get any pop like that, do you? <laughs> I've never seen anybody do that, but I'm sure it wouldn't work. Oh, please, I want a cool drink of Pepsi or Dr. Pepper, Coke, whatever it is. Could you do this with a headache? Could you feel bad and still do this? Oh, where's that slot? Oh, there it is. Can you still put your money in the slot? So it doesn't matter how you feel. You just go by the instructions, right? Can you still make a choice? Oh, Lord, just, I, I don't want to ask you for what kind of, just give me whatever you think's best for me. I'm talking about what I grew up with. No, he said, uh-uh, it's up to you. I want, I don't want Mellow Yellow because my eyes bug with that. So you get something, old people, you have Dr. Pepper. And then it says, enjoy. I met the conditions. I made a choice. I used my will. It's all a choice. I got my pop. Now I'm smiling. Why? Because I found something that works. And yet you set people before the Bible and give them instruction. One, two, three. And I promise you this because I've been here too long. I'm not talking about you folks here, all of you, all of anybody anywhere, but I've seen people my whole life sit there and fold their arms and remain a complainer and a criticizer and bitter and question what you just said, whether it were. They've never tried. It's been talked out of it. Some people you cannot teach. Some people are so indifferent, they just want to be a member of a church, but they're not going to practice anything. And everything is so unsettled in their lives. I don't know about this, I don't know about that. Just like James 1 we talked about a while ago. They hear the word. They try to pray about it, hoping maybe somehow God will see the sincerity of their life and do something about it, but they don't know what it is to use faith. Didn't James say, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men? Did he say he always does or just maybe could? No, no, come on now. You know better than that. Now, he didn't mean he, he would give. It just means he could give. See, somebody misspelled a word. Say no. He giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. He doesn't fuss at you because you're asking all the time. But let him ask in faith. You got to believe you've got it before you get it. Time out. Pause. Pause. Time out, coach. Halftime. Jesus said, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them. 
and you shall get it. The Greek text says something like, when you pray, believe you have received, and you shall. So that means when I approach God for something he has promised, faith is the substance of things uh, hoped for. It's the evidence of... Uh, so I haven't seen the answer yet. I haven't felt anything yet. But faith embraces his promise and begins to live like you do have it. I haven't seen the Lamb's Book of Life either. I believe it's there. I'm peace with that. I'm not trying to get in it. I believe I'm in it. I believe what I did a long time ago got me in. I believe my name is there. I'm going to live like it's there because that's part of it. But I believe my name is there. That's faith. Acting like it's true. But when you're unsettled, he said you're like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Is it verse 7? It says, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. Think of that. Let me tell you why a lot of people really aren't getting anything from God. And why there's a little bit of discouragement or maybe disgust at this message. Because it hadn't worked for a lot of people. Let me tell you one reason why it hadn't worked. This is not the only one, but this is a good reason, a major reason. It's because people are not believing. They can talk about faith and sing about faith. They can all of that stuff about faith. They're just not having it. And he said, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. Now, that's a big word that goes real deep because anything is a whole lot more than just what's happening right now. That's anything. That the Almighty God holds us to faith in him for what he's promised. He holds us to that. And a person who is unsettled, a person whose mind is not clear, who hasn't been taught plainly that God said it and he will do it, but somebody said, well, you know, he could. It's muddled. It's not clear. And you get unsettled and you can't believe God. You can't receive from God because you don't know. And yet when somebody comes out and says, you can they think, well, what kind of a church is this? They act like you can just believe God and he'll do it. He will. He absolutely will. When the devil begins to rob you of the certainty of his promise, you are robbed. You have effectually been robbed. You are now captive. Captive to your feelings and your questions. And your unhappiness with God, his word, and the preacher that taught you that. You begin to just say, oh. Let me tell you what unbelief does in a deeper sense. Turn to Titus 1. Look at verse 15. Unto the pure, all things are pure. When you're at peace with God and you're settled with God, you tend to look at life that way. You can see all the ugly out there, but that's not what controls you. But unto them that are defiled, this is the antithesis or the opposite, but unto them that are defiled. Are you defiled this morning? Now don't say nothing. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving. And the conjunction joins unbelieving with defiled. The two go together. Defiled and unbelieving. To those kind of people, nothing is pure. Nothing. Everything's up in the air. Nothing is certain. Yeah, you never know about anything. Because they are defiled and they are unbelieving. 
is nothing pure. Notice how that 15th verse is. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. Even their mind and conscience is defiled. Now the word defiled means stained and polluted. It's got stuff in the way where the things of God don't fit there. Your conscience is supposed to be a guide. Your conscience is that inward voice that is formed when God speaks his word and you hear his word and it becomes, this is the way walk ye in it, like tell the truth and don't lie. Your conscience will never lie to you. Again, when the police officer says, how fast were you going? Your mind, which is in a survival mode, says 50. And your conscience says, you were doing 73. You look right at your speed arm before that. You were doing 73. Shh. See, your conscience is telling you the truth. But something else about you, something in the area of your mind and your thinking is all about meism. It doesn't want that to be true, so you say something else. And therefore, you become guilty of sin because you lied. Now you really are defiled. And then you keep arguing with the cop, you'll probably sin again. This is what it means to be defiled. Your clean and pure conscience is not adhered to. You're doing something else, and you suppress it. You can come to the place where you no longer, listen, you're no longer bothered. You're no longer convicted about anything. Your conscience has been pierced and pricked with a hot iron. It doesn't even work anymore. I think that's what happens with terrorists who kill people just for the sake of killing. Or some of the ugly and disastrous things you read in the paper about what humans do to humans. They couldn't have a conscience. There is none. They're like animals of passion. They just feel things and do things and no conscience. The more you disregard what God says, the more you give in to that same kind of spirit to where one day you become an enemy of God. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but the way they live denies God. They're abominable disobedient, and unto every good work, reprobate. The word abominable means detestable to God. You won't make it to heaven. Revelation 21, 8, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable. Third one, have no part in heaven, but their part is in the lake of fire. Abominable. Now, listen to me. All right, this serious message. Abominable is one of the words that describes what happens when you quit believing or you don't believe. I'll read it again. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient, which means unwilling to be persuaded, you can't teach them. And reprobate. Boy, reprobate is a word which means you're unproven. You've been tested. You faced a test, a trial. Chances are you were unwilling to be tested but sought some way out of it. Therefore, you're a reject. I'm sure automobile tire companies and parts companies have a room where they throw all the stuff that didn't pass their test. and They can't sell it to the public because it has to be better than what that thing was. Remember Paul used the word castaway in 1 Corinthians Nine, he said, lest when I have preached to others, I myself become a castaway. He says, I have to keep under my body. I have to maintain a life that I'm committed to. If I don't, 
He that knoweth to do good and doeth it not. If I don't live the life that I preach and if I don't live the life that he's showing me, at the end, while I was in church all my life, I myself would be a castaway. Sometimes people just don't really want to go this far with religion because they don't know anybody else in any other religion, in their family, out of their family, their pastel of friends. They know of nobody else in which religion has such bearing on their life. It's a part of your life. It's not life itself. And yet, if you want to realize, you folks here, if you want to realize all the good things that God said about the abundant life, this has to become your passion. This is your life, he said in Deuteronomy 32, that you heed the words of God, because that's how faith comes. And the devil knows if he can attack the word and make its meaning uncertain, he begins to attack your mind so that you can't be sure and then you lose heart, or you faint, or you draw back, and you cave in to the circumstances, and you surround yourself with people of light, precious doubt, who say, well, you know, you never know. I mean, you can't just believe you're going to be well, and you may, God may not, he could, but he may not want to. And, all. and so you just become unsettled and uncertain in your mind. You don't know what to do. You don't know where you're going. It's like the hospital prayer. The hospital prayer is not a prayer of faith. The ones I've heard. Almighty God, we know that this and all this, that. So we ask it. They never say, in the name of Jesus, I believe now this soul is healed. They would never say that because if it didn't work, oh, there's this uncertainty. What if it doesn't work and you pray that way? What if you say, in Jesus' name, be healed? And they weren't just jumping up on their feet and running out the door. It'd make you look bad. People would talk about you. So the preacher spares himself the ire of the people and begins to accommodate what people already believe, nothing. So you pray nothing. Or the manifestation is slow in coming. I prayed yesterday and nothing's better. Well, you know, then your mind goes into this. This is what the devil says. How do you know it's going to work? The second thing is fear and worry. Oh, fear and worry. Fear and worry. People are worrying today about everything. This hooks up with being unsettled and uncertain in your mind because people are fearful and troubled, anxious, because they're not sure. Because they're not sure. We look at all the things you're given to be unsure about. Take the economy. Does not the media portray the economy as the most uncertain, up and down thing in the world? And your job is next? Haven't people lost all that they had? The stock market falls and millions and millions of dollars in savings and IRAs and Fannie Mae's and nest eggs, they all go down the hill. And here's all these people without anything. And they're like me, they're 60 years old. And come on now, they're unsure about tomorrow. You begin to worry about what if the economy goes bad? What if you can't make this next payment on your house? What if you can't make the car? What if your child, what if the swine flew? What if? See, nobody's going to the Bible and say, God, what do you say about this? What should we believe about what this going? What are you telling us to believe? You know that people don't do that? People are saying, God, give me something here about the flu, what can I do about it? 
Well, no plague shall come now your dwelling. How's that one? That's not good enough. <laughs> then you're beyond me. That's good enough for me. No plague come now your dwelling. He'll give his angels charge over you. They'll keep you in all of your ways. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to all truth. 2 Corinthians 9. The word is full of answers for all today's problems. And yet people seldom ever turn to it. Seldom ever turn to it. We get on the phone and call people. What are you going to do? Well, what are we going to do? Well, I don't know. I read in the paper this morning. I heard the news report this morning. Paul Harvey's gone now, but now somebody else said something so bad. People begin talking that way. They fear. Child has a fever, and immediately, you know, this is the big one. Or you're coughing, or the child coughs. And the last you heard the story the other day about some child that was coughing died in three days. You worry. You worry about tomorrow. It never occurs to everybody that God is already in your tomorrows. He's already there. He's already there to lead you through it. And yet we worry so much. Jesus, didn't he say in the Sermon on the Mount to take no thought? Didn't he? Take no thought. And the devil says, what if? Two words, what if? What if this gets worse? What if you say you're going to trust the Lord and this condition gets worse until it becomes chronic and can't be fixed? Then what are you going to do? Fear. I've been there. Many years ago, Bonnie and I made a decision to trust the Lord. Children were growing up. You know how it is with childhood problems and children, you know, all the things that go through there. Years and years. Now it's been on 40 years. The two of us haven't had a doctor's bill in 40 years. Hadn't had a medical deduction in 40 years. And I guarantee you, I grew up sicker than anybody in this church. Just sick all the time. Pneumonia, colds, sick. And I know what the devil says to people having come out of that kind of a background and entering into life with this big religious decision. I'm going to trust the Lord. And he says, yeah, uh-huh, I'm sure you will. What are you going to do if? And we've seen it all. Everything from concussions to broken things and swollen things and lingering things, congestion that lasts for several months. We've seen it. And every time the devil would poke his head in the door, we'd poke a sword in his face. <laughs> Dancing around the room and the child that's fever so high that they're convulsing and you're singing this joy, his joy, because the Bible said count it all joy. And people say, you're crazy. Well, I think the child got well, didn't he? And after a while, we didn't have to put up with much of that from any of our children growing up. It seemed like you prove yourself, he protects you. And yet there's a fear in people's lives of taking this step of faith. What if it doesn't work? What if it does? Like a high school principal asked me one time, I spoke in his school, sharing about Jesus to these kids. And the principal said, that was a good talk, coach. 
I ain't coaching anymore, but that's okay. I know it's me. School where I used to coach. He said, well, coach, what are you going to do uh, if all this isn't true? I mean, what if all this turns out not to be true at all? You know, the Bible and all that stuff. Kind of grinning. That's okay. Because I grinned back. I said, well, you know what? I'm living a happy life. I'm really quite happy with what I'm doing, and I'm at peace with God. If there is no God, man, I wouldn't want to go back the way I was. And I said, what are you going to do if it is? <laughs> I asked him that. I said, what are you going to do if it is true? I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me. He said, man, that's a gut buster. <laughs> it's worse than that. Because all eternity hinges on how you respond to what if? All eternity. If it's true, are you living like it's true? If it isn't true, we know you don't believe it's true. Fear and worry. So what do you do when you're scared, when things are fearful, when really fearful things confront you? Dangers at night, dangers at day, the lurking shadows, the arrow that flies. What do you do? Let me read you two verses. Psalm 56, 11 says, In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid of what man can do unto me. And in the same Psalm, in verse 6, he said, What time I am afraid, I will trust thee. It's just not like fear doesn't come and knock on the door. It's just that your response to it, you don't cave into it. You fight it. You fight it. How did Jesus fight the devil? It is written. Didn't he say that? He said, it is written. That's how you fight. And finally, this morning, the way the devil really does defeat people is through insecurity. Insecurity. People are looking for security. As I said, they're looking for nest eggs and investments. And the media tells you how you can be secure. You young folks go to school, get an education, advance yourself and learn and be the head of the class. Go to church and find a wife or a husband. That's the best place. To, well, usually. <laughs> usually. I didn't find mine in church, and she didn't find hers in church. But maybe if I get a good enough education, I can marry a right person. I can get that really good job. We can have the nice home and the nice car and nice furniture and lovely children. And ride off in the sunset on a white charger. Security a nest egg, investments, something laid up for your older age, something for when you retire. Now, I don't know what retire means, I just don't know how it works. Retire means you go to bed at night. <laughs> so much today of what sells is how to be secure. Investments. And we've seen how insecure investments are. Look at the problems that people have gotten themselves into because of insecurity all the speculations and all the investments that people, if I can just do this, if, take the gambler. What does the gambler say? Man, he was at the big boat last night and he lost a ton of money, but he's got a little ton left. And he's convinced if I can just hit it next time, man, I can come out of this and I can have it. So he takes his little pile left and takes a little bit of his little pile. You gotta have a little bitty little bit left he takes what little bit he's got left with all his confidence 
and he rolls them bones and loses his little bit. There's a gambling spirit. You always think that by some kind of something outside of God, without God in the equation, if I can do something like this, then maybe I'll hit the big one, and then bam, I'm there. And God is in none of that. And it only breeds and leads to more insecurity. Jesus said, I say, therefore, unto you, take no thought for your life, life insurance, end of your life, retirement. Jesus said, take no thought for your life. Now, Bonnie and I do decide to do that. I shred all those health things, all of them. I got to shred You ought to get one. And when they come in, it's just pretty thick to shred the whole thing. So you take them out, and just stick them down to shredder, all those health things, Humana and all the rest of them. Oh, you know, you don't have enough. One of them says, you won't get enough from the government to be buried. I thought, I ain't really planning on dying right now. <laughs> he said, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat. Ooh, how many people are concerned about that? Or what you shall drink? nor yet for your body what you should put on. Look at that. It's not life more than meat and the body than raiment. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And therefore, Jesus said, take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Now, I believe that particular thing many years ago about my financial well-being, whatever that was, towards the end of my life, and I was in my 30s. And I decided then that I would let God take care of me. You know, when you're in your 30s, ah, that's no big deal. Then 30 years later, and people say, uh, what kind of policy you got? Your church got you something? They do. They do. We got prayers. They really are good at that. As the world would say, I have chosen to be a fool and reject all the world's ways of security from the medical stuff. You know, the government gives you that medic something, medic, medi something, Medicare, Medicaid, something. You get that. You didn't ask for it. I'm sure I'm paying for it. Because nothing's free with, if Sam's running it. If Uncle Sugar has got it, it's cost you something. <laughs> but I have shunned all it. I have. I can honestly say that I have shunned it. I have shunned it, and I have shunned it. And folks say, well, what are you going to do? You know what? God brought me this far. I think I mentioned something about old age the other night. Didn't he say in old age they shall be fat and flourishing? Of course he did. Fat and flourishing are words for abundance. How do you know that when it's time to go, you won't? He just says it's time for you to go, and you get through preaching your sermon, you go sit down in the chair and wave hands by everybody and go. Didn't need any retirement, did you? Everybody worries about things like that. And I know as Christians, if you tell people not to take any thought for tomorrow, and, you know, the most secure person that ever lived was Jesus Christ. What did he have when he died? A part of a robe. He was with nothing, not even a place, he said himself, to lay his head. Nothing. Forsaken by all of his friends. He changed the course of the world when he died. And yet it never bothered Jesus. He was able to say, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Security, folks, is not found in seeking security. Security is found in seeking the kingdom of God. 
and resting your case with God and trusting in him. I can say this as a testimony. I didn't read this. I didn't hear about it. I can tell you that after 40 years, this is what God does. He takes care of you. If you want a testimony in your life that your children will honor and respect, live it. Live it. Don't talk about it. Do it. You want people around you to know that you're a true believer? Live it. And don't ever say, why is this happening to me? Just say, why am I not fighting? Because if I fight, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Listen to this last verse. Jesus said, hereafter, I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. My last words are, me neither. Me neither. John 14, 30. Me neither. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, make us to understand your words, not mine, but yours. Give us a heart to know you, a desire to follow you, and to serve you. Help us get our minds off of the world. As your apostle Paul wrote, that we're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Help us to guard our minds with the helmet of salvation, to capture every thought that comes there and bring it to the obedience of Christ. Make us to be strong, and may you be pleased with us, O God. May you find us strong and living the life you gave us. I thank you for the privilege of living this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
say, I really want to, then get on a journey. Saddle up that faith horse and ride the faith trail, and God will bring you into his sunset. Amen.